0: fresh start is a good feeling, right? Uh, It's middle of October now. Students, remember how nice the first day of school felt? Now it's midterm season and exams are around the corner. Sorry to raise the anxiety right off the start of a sermon. I think about fresh starts and I think about my home and all of the chunky, plastic, baby stuff that we'll be able to get rid of eventually, oh, sweet Jesus, hallelujah. I can't wait (laughs) till that moment of downsizing and minimalizing. Um, Fresh starts happen in many different ways, and, and in the life of faith there could be times that feel like a a new leaf being turned over, a new chapter beginning. Um, It's not necessarily maybe when we come to faith for the first time, but maybe we um, journey away for a while, or maybe we go through the motions, but then suddenly something clicks and it gets deeper, or we're we're back for the first time in a long time, and, and it feels like something new, something fresh. In, in a lot of Christian traditions, the way you mark that, um, especially if you're wanting to join a church uh, for the first time, the way you mark that is through baptism. Even if you've been baptized before, you, you receive baptism again, but not in the, in the Methodist church. The question we're going to wrestle with today is, why do we not do that? Why, why, why don't we mark fresh starts with a new baptism? Why, why don't we re-baptize? Because if the question was just "Do we rebaptize?", then the answer is no. All right, sermon over. Um, <laughs> um, that, it's not really the question. The, the deeper question is why. Instead of rebaptizing, we do this thing called remembering our baptism, and maybe that just sounds like semantics to you. But but there's a deeper theology at work here that I'd like us to reflect upon before um, we get to receive an infant through baptism and then remember baptism ourselves as uh, the people of faith here at AUMC. To help us in our journey today, we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And in chapter 14, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. So, it's this miracle of loaves and fishes where all these people are fed when they shouldn't have been able to, and, and there's more work to be done on the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and before they're going to get across, though, there's something that's going to happen at the water here. That's where we pick up in verse 22. It says, right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. So, disciples at sea, Jesus up in a mountain. Evening came, and he was alone. Matthew's underscoring that. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples walking on the lake When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, it's a g-g-g-g-g-ghost. Just like that. (laughs) They were so frightened, they screamed, wouldn't you? Just then, Jesus spoke to them, be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. I'm going to pause there for now. This is a story that um, we may not immediately think of as a story of baptism. That's not typically h- how we read this story. And yet this week, as I was reflecting upon what it means to remember our baptism, this story just kept coming into view and when I began to look at the story of, G- of Jesus and Peter walking on water, I began to see so many themes of baptism present. Um, it helps me understand this story in a new way. Walking on water is a phrase that whether or not you've ever read the Bible or this is your first interaction with the Christian faith, odds are you've heard or used that phrase in your life, right, to walk on water. We use it to mean that someone is just like, oh, so perfect, right? Or we really use it kind of sarcastically to refer about, oh, you know, Jim, everybody thinks he just walks on water, right? It's not always a phrase that we use very glowingly for people, But it's this idea that, you know, we're above the fray, we're just supernatural or just glide where other people stumble and fall or drown to walk on water. It makes me think of this kind of perfectness, this perfection. And as someone who struggles with perfectionism, I struggle with this idea of walking on water. Because perfectionism doesn't bring me a whole lot of goodness in my life. It leads me to picket my nails until they bleed, I'm ashamed to say. Um, leads me to consider whether or not I should have worn the dress shirt that I did this morning because there's a coffee stain under this robe that you can't see. But I noticed as I was driving into work, and I'm not kidding, church, I did two U-turns as I thought about going home and then saying, no, Scott, you're being silly, and turned back around. Perfectionism doesn't bring me a whole lot of joy in this life. We, we also have a weird relationship with perfectionism in trying to walk on water in the Christian church, do we not? It, it shows itself in the way that we do worship. You know, we're all about bringing your praises, but can we also bring our laments? I don't know. That feels icky and weird. It shows itself in the way that we interact with each other. Hey, Steve, how are you doing this morning? Ah, oh, brother, I'm great. I'm so good inside. I want to die, but we're going to tell each other, I'm awesome. Life is great. Everything's terrible. It shows itself in the way that we present our public lives through social media or, or, or other means as well. Yeah, I can sum up sort of the Christian culture of appearing like everything is perfect and talking about shirts and robes. At my previous appointment, I wore a different style robe, and it wasn't like this one. It it would show your collar and your necktie. So I always had to wear a collar and a necktie when I wore that robe. But if you know me, you know I don't wear a collar and necktie barely at all, and certainly not with the worship service I serve primarily. And so I'd keep this dress shirt in my office, and I had one tie and and my dress shirt that I would put on uh, for that hour of worship to wear with my robe. The thing was, only the collar was I The rest of the shirt looked awful, right? (laughs) It was a terrible shirt. It was wrinkled like crazy. There were probably pit stains. It was bad, you know, but the collar looked great, and that's all you could see. I think sometimes our, our, our obsession with perfection looks a lot like a wrinkled shirt underneath a robe where the perfect collar is showing. Now, having said everything I've just said about perfectionism, this might sound weird. As Methodists, we believe in something called Christian perfection and we believe that's a good thing, right? Now, wait a second. Didn't I just talk about how perfectionism is bad? I did. Christian perfection and perfectionism are, are two different things. Christian perfection is this theo, theo, theological concept that has existed, existed for a long time, going back to the early church fathers um, and mothers, and, and it was during the Reformation that the Protestant movement um, didn't really incorporate this theology at all until John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, kind of rediscovered it and wanted to incorporate it into his Protestant theology. And the concept is essentially this, that um, through God's grace, specifically God's sanctifying grace, that, that grace of God that is at work within us when we open ourselves to who God is in Jesus Christ, that sanctifying grace that, that carries us beyond the waters of baptism into life forevermore, that sanct grace is so good and so powerful and so potent that it actually could help to make us perfect in love. Hear me say perfect in love. Not just one day when we go to heaven, as was the common thought in Wesley's day, but actually we could get a taste of that if even for a moment here in this life. And of course, Wesley being Wesley, he had caveats you might not notice it happened and if you did think it was happening you were probably bragging so it probably wasn't happening and you know da, 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 da. but the idea was that we could open ourselves in such a way to allow God's grace to free us in such a way that we could have a taste of that perfection and love in this life to live totally within God's will now that creates kind of this horizon dream that we don't necessarily expect we'll get there, but it's, it's, it's that what comes next, right? After we say we believe in Jesus and after we commit our lives to this work, well, okay, so what is this leading us to? And Wesley says, not just something far off in the distance, but something that we could actually experience here. Now, the difference between perfectionism and Christian perfection is that one is driven by shame and guilt and anxiety, and the other one is driven by grace. Right? The difference between perfectionism and Christian perfection is an ocean of grace that Jesus is standing upon, inviting us into. Christian perfection inspires me, invites me to live more fully into the grace that I already know holds me, whereas perfectionism invites me to be anxious and to make way too many U-turns on my road to work this morning the same god who leads us to perfection is the same god who catches us when we fall and when we talk about rebaptism it's usually because of something that has changed in us right when when i'm asked about rebaptism and i ask why that's important for someone it's usually because something in their lives has taken place something something within them perhaps has shifted or changed and the the reality is when we ground baptism and our understanding of baptism in our understanding of God's grace first, what God is doing through these waters, what God is doing in our lives, then the concept of rebaptism doesn't make quite as much sense because it's not as though God's grace didn't take the first time. It's not as though God ever abandoned us or left us. It's not as though God said, well, whenever you decide to come back, let me know. I'll just be right here, right? When our understanding of baptism is first and foremost about that ocean of grace, then no longer do we need to live and die based upon whatever is happening internally necessarily, but instead trust that we are held in all of it. Imagine if the disciples had to stop and get rebaptized every time they came to a new and deeper and fuller understanding of who Jesus was. That would be an annoying gospel, right? <laughs> every time Jesus does something, Peter's like, wait! Wait! Wait, I think I get it now. Hold on, Jesus, dunk me one more time. Quick, right? That would be a really long gospel. When we remember our baptism, we remember that God's grace never runs out. That's a simple truth, but a big one. So the story continues as Peter's walking on water. God's going so good for him, isn't it? If only for a moment. Then it says in verse 30, but when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. As he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me! And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? Oof. You ever watch a movie or read a book for like the tenth time and you notice something new in it? Here, has that ever happened? That's a that's a fun moment when you're like, Oh I, I got that for the first time. You you're watching it back for the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time, and you notice something new that's fun. I had that experience with the story this week because I've I, I've always noticed Jesus' response, right? It sounds so harsh. You know, Peter is drowning, and Jesus picks that moment for some tough love, right? Like, get him in the boat first, at least, Jesus, right? Before you're like, you know, Peter, can we talk about this? This is really a problem, right? And it seems like he's blaming him in that moment. You man of weak faith. Like, God, Jesus, harsh. Poor Peter. I mean, he, he walked out on the water, didn't he? But I, I, I notice that Jesus is... He is offering this tough love, and he is calling out Peter's lack of faith, but I've always inferred that Jesus is saying Peter lacks faith in him. Peter, you you man of weak faith, why did you doubt me? But he doesn't say that, does he? In fact, if if we read the story, we notice that Peter has tremendous faith in Jesus. When Peter sees Jesus walking ghostly out on the, on the lake, and everyone else is terrified. Peter calls him Lord. That's a title reserved for God and Savior. Lord. And then not just that, he says, if it's you, call me out on the waters too. And Jesus does. And he steps out. How many of us honestly, honestly would have stepped out of that boat? Really? He does. And he takes a few steps. And then when, when his faith begins to waver and he begins to sink, who does he cry out for? Jesus, save me! Right? Not only does he believe Jesus can walk on water, he believes Jesus can stand on it and pull him out at the same time. Tell me Peter doesn't believe in Jesus. So I wonder, is, is Jesus asking Peter to have more faith in him? Or is Jesus asking Peter to have more faith in God's Spirit working within Peter. You know, as Methodists, we, we don't share a theology that simply says, Jesus, fix it. Right? There are many uh, ways to understand the Christian faith and to believe that one day Jesus will come back and set everything right. right? We'll fix it all for us. And so then the the primary goal is to make sure as many people can profess faith in Jesus before that day comes. But as Methodists, that's not what we believe. What we believe is that Jesus has come, and Jesus has set right what we couldn't through His life and death and resurrection. And Jesus has now given us a spirit, that same spirit that calls Peter to walk out upon water and has sent a holy living spirit of God into the lives of men and women and siblings throughout the world called Christian to be this thing called the body of Christ, to welcome this thing called the kingdom of God upon the earth. That's what we believe. And that one day, Jesus isn't going to come back and fix it, but today God has called us to be the hands and feet of Christ. And so Jesus sees us drowning, going, Jesus, save us! And Jesus says, you have little faith could walk on water. You've got the gift. You've got the power. I am the power. You've got it. Why are you drowning and crying out for me? When we understand that truth, it changes the way we see our relationship with the world. We no longer sit by passively, idly by, watching things go wrong, watching things be broken, and saying, God, I sure hope Jesus can fix that one day. I sure hope Jesus can fix Ukraine. I sure hope Jesus can fix poverty. I sure hope Jesus can feed hungry people. I sure hope Jesus can solve homelessness. I sure hope Jesus can, right? That's an unfortunately passive posture that Christians can take in the world. And we're we're drowning in the Sea of Galilee. We're crying out for Jesus to fix it. And Jesus is saying, ah, little faith, you've got it in your hands. You've got it in your feet. You've got it in each other. What more do you think you need? When we remember our baptisms, we remember the power of the Holy Spirit is in our hands. Again, that is a simple truth that has a depth of meaning to it. How would it change the way that we live in this world if we truly believed the power of the Holy Spirit had been gifted to each and every one of us to bring about the kingdom of God on earth? Might that change the way we live? Story continues and closes here. Verse 32, it says, When they got into the boat, the wind settled down, And then those in the boat worshiped Jesus and said, you must be God's son. You know, as I was reading this story this week, and I was reading others' reflections upon it, I I, I was reading a commentary on this text that changed the way I viewed it. And it, it pointed out something that maybe walking on water isn't even the true depth of faith that we're called to see, in this scene. Walking on water is wonderful. It's powerful. It's empowering. But I notice now why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus is up on this mountaintop, and the disciples are down in the boat. They're in this storm, and they're terrified. Because if you've ever been in the middle of a large lake in a bad storm, and I have been, it's terrifying. You might think this is the end. And they see Jesus walking on water beside the boat with them, his presence calling out to them, and they can hardly believe it. And what does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say, y'all, get out of the boat and walk on water with me. No, the first thing he says to them is what? He says, be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. What we realize is that That's not enough for Peter in this story. He says, I don't want to just know that you're here, Jesus. I I need to know that you've got power over this situation. Call me out onto those waters, Jesus. Peter wants something spectacular. He wants one of those good, old-timey miracles. Let me do something cool, Jesus. Make this different, Jesus. And so Jesus does, but that doesn't really work. But are we all too different from Peter? Peter? How often do we find ourselves in a boat alongside those whom we love, and the storm is raging, and we think it's the end, and we think God is up on some mountaintop so far away that, he, that God can't even hear us, that, that God's unaware of what storm is besetting us, and what we want is for something to fix it, to change everything, to still the storm, to help us walk on the water. And then God shows up and God offers a simple a simple reality that is this. I'm with you. Be encouraged. Don't be afraid. That's not good enough for me too often. I want God to stop the storm. I want God to help me walk on water. But maybe the point of the story is that faith ultimately True, deep, life changing faith is about embracing the presence of God, not just on the mountaintop, but also beside the boat, in the boat, in the midst of the storm, knowing that in all we do, in all of our successes, in all of our failures, when we walk on water, when we drown, when we're challenged, when we're capsized, when we're shipwrecked, in every one of those moments, God is with us in it all. God's not stuck on some mountain. God's not looking down and hoping we make it. God's also not waving a magic wand and fixing everything for us. My friends, when we remember our baptism, when that sea spray splashes up against our faces, when we remember our baptisms, we remember that God is with us and we are not alone. Now that's a simple truth that will change everything for us. What could we do in this life if we truly believed that we're real? In the depths of our hearts, if the splash of water could feel like that sea spray calling us back into the stormy seas, hearing the Lord that we have proclaimed as God and Savior, now say to us, be encouraged, I am with you because I don't know what kind of storm you're riding out right now. I don't know if you feel like you need to walk on water or if you just hope you make it to shore or if you feel like you're drowning. And I wish that I could wave a magic wand and make everything better. But that's not the kind of God that we serve. I dare say that's not the kind of God that we need. The God that we have and the God that presides over these waters of baptism is the God that says, in it all and through it all, we are together. In it all and through it all, we are together. In it all and through it all, we are together. Never forget that, my friends. God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.